going to be finishing up Acts chapter 11. One of the things I talk about all the time with the book of Acts, and I stress it, is the movement and things that are happening. The book of Acts covers over 30 years in 28 chapters. So there's a lot of movement in, in, in you know, going over things quickly and consolidating and transitioning. And, you know, we, we, we saw in the last couple of weeks, I guess, you know, Peter and those guys, you know, Peter getting the vision to go and deal with Cornelius and uh, the Gentile went to his house. Gentiles got saved, and it's all exciting. Went back, you know, Jerusalem, the guys in Jerusalem, a little concerned about he went to the home of a Gentile. Peter went in there, you know, and, and, and Peter is the guy. I mean, he's the one that was closest to Jesus, reminded him of some things, and everybody is good. Now, there's always, this is always going to be a creeping up problem. We're going to see it in Acts 15, kind of towards April or May when we finish up uh, this, you know, studying all that. We'll see some of that stuff happening, and I'll, I'll cover a lot of that. But what you're going to see, what we're about to see is, is this transitioning coming. We're going to close out chapter 11 today um, with some stuff at, at the church at Antioch, which sets up what's going to happen in chapter 13, which we'll see in a few weeks. Um, in chapter 12, it's the last real thing about Peter, um, Luke. You know, when they write, they don't always write everything chronologically. I, try to tell, I tell this to the connect groups I work with. Don't read stuff and always think it's chronological. In, in that day and age, in the Eastern Hebrew way, and these mostly Hebrew, but even the Greeks, they would write by a topic. The topic would cover some distance, and then they would go back and may pick up some back, further back where they were before for the next topic. And sometimes they transition and they link things. And you kind of see that uh, in, in chapter 12, which we're not covering today. They talk about the persecutions going on. But what really chapter 12 serves to do, it's like Luke wants to get one more thing about Peter in. Because I've told you before, the book of Acts centers on Peter and Paul. It does. And you've seen so much on Peter. And yes, you've gotten Philip in there and some other people. Paul has gotten saved because Luke picks that up where it happens in relationship to Stephen and the stoning of Stephen. And, and he's still early, you know, you're early in the life of the church. And Paul doesn't come on the scene, you know, well, he comes on the scene today, but he really doesn't come on the scene until the 40s. A lot of time passes. And so he wants to get that in there. And, but he's got, he'll have one more thing to do with Peter. And then he's really going to close out Peter. He'll be a little bit, but he's closed out. And then in chapter 13, we're picking up with Paul. The end of chapter 11 lays the groundwork for what's going to happen in chapter 13. There'll be an interlude with what deals with chapter 12 to sum up Peter. And then Luke's just going to you know, blow and go into chapter 13. So at the end of chapter 11, verse 19 says this. So then, those who were scattered because of persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. Remember, so I was early on, Stephen, chapter, you know, 7, the persecution of Stephen. And it says they all scattered, and Paul was introduced, and we see Paul saved, and we saw all this other stuff happen. He goes back and picks that up and reminds us that there was a scattering, a dispersion, a movement of people away. Some way their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus in Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. So we mentioned some of the places they went. They went up the Mediterranean Sea to the area of Phoenicia. That's the area back in the Old Testament where um, Jezebel came from. Uh, they went to the island of Cyprus. People were converted there. And they made their way up to this little place called Antioch, which begins to become the focal point of this next 
kind of section of the New Testament that deals so much with what Paul's going to do. And it makes clear that they were reaching Jews. And, and because that's primarily where the gospel, that's where it'd be easiest to receive. And so over a period of about a dozen plus years, this is what was going on, maybe 15. Now, Antioch, there's several Antiochs. A few weeks ago, I preached uh, a passage dealing with, um, I can't remember what that sermon was, but they went up to Antioch. Uh, Paul was up that way, you know, preaching a message. And that was the Antioch in Turkey. This is the Antioch in Syria along the Orontes River. About 300 B.C., one of the generals of Alexander the Great, after they had done all the things they did and Alexander was dead, founded a city just off the Mediterranean coast, up kind of between the area of Palestine and Turkey, modern-day Palestine and Turkey, Israel and Turkey. Um, And he named it Antioch after his father, Antiochus. There's lots of Antiochus people, and his name was actually Seleucus. In in, in the Greco-Roman world, you know, from about, you know, 400 B.C. till about the time of the Romans, there's a lot of Antiochus and Seleucus and all that. And he founded the city that eventually became one of the most powerful cities in all the Roman Empire. When the Romans and, and Ptolemy conquered everything and everything in, in this little city became part of the Roman Empire, it got great favor with Rome. So by the time you get to where we're at, this, this community uh, which was, was on the river, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome and Alexandria, Egypt were larger. I've seen everywhere estimates between 250,000 to a half a million people live there. Well, the, probably the most reliable is close to about 300,000 people live there. And in this city, it was flooded with a lot of different Greek religions, pagan religions, especially of Artemis and, you know, and, and, and the, more, the more immoral religions. And it was a place where religion flourished. And the Jews also, there were 30, 40, 50,000 Jews there. So they had multiple synagogues. This is a great place to take the gospel to reach Jews because there's a lot of Jews there. But what's also interesting is that a place like this is going to be more open to different ideas and religious beliefs like what would become Christianity. And so this is a natural place where the spread of our faith would go. It says in verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, in the chapter, chapter 6 of, of, um, of Acts, when it lists the seven guys that were involved in helping give food, one of them, I believe it's Nicholas, was from Antioch. And so there may have already been a little bit of a, a kind of connection there. But what we're told is, specifically by Luke, this great detail, and some think Luke may have come from the area of Antioch, that people from Cyprus, where a guy named Barnabas was from, and northern Africa and Cyrene began to go there, but they weren't preaching to just the, the Jewish people. They began to preach to what it says in the Greek language, the Hellenists translated to Greeks, which is an interesting way we got to kind of figure out who this, uh, who this is. There's three possibilities of what it can be. 
Some think that this might be the Greek-speaking Jews, the Jews who were Greek in culture and their language. We saw them in chapter 6. That was the whole problem about the distribution of food. But it doesn't appear that in, when it says that they went preaching to Jews, that they would leave out the Greek-speaking Jews because from the very beginning, Greek culture Jews were included in the Christian movement. So it doesn't seem likely that that's who they're referring to because they wouldn't have made that distinction of what's going on. Plus, we wouldn't see what's happening later in a few, in a few verses when they sent people to investigate. The second possibility is that it was Gentiles who had kind of become followers of Yahweh, of, of the Jewish faith, but never fully converted. In other words, people just like Cornelius. In chapter 10, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, kind of a proselyte who worshiped God and gave but never was circumcised, he had this vision, sent for Peter, Peter had the vision, that's what we saw. People like him, lots of people like him. The third possibility is that it was just Gentiles, period, the Greeks. Of those three possibilities, the most likely scenario is the second group. It makes sense in the flow of things. One of them who were God-fearers but were Gentile and Greeks, Cornelius, and Greek, Roman, same thing. The Greeks, another word for Gentiles, from the Hellenist culture, the Greek culture. In chapter 10 came to faith. We saw the residual effect in chapter 11. It makes sense at the end of chapter 11, what we're being told now, was not only did Cornelius come to faith, but at some point in the city of Antioch, people came from Cyrene and Cyprus and began to target specifically God-fearing, God-worshipping, monotheistic Gentiles. Now, along the way, regular pagan Gentiles would come to faith too. Strategically, if you want to reach the Greek culture, you begin with those most likely to come to faith in Jesus, which would be people already familiar with the Jewish way, who followed the Jewish way, and would be familiar with the concept of a Messiah, which was Jesus. You would reach them first and then strategically begin to move out to the Gentiles. This is absolutely what Paul did. When Paul would go to a city, he'd start in the synagogue. He was going there to reach Gentiles, but he would start in the synagogue. And from there, he would also you know, reach Jew and God-fearers. And from there, he'd go reach Gentiles. So what you see then is, even before Paul began his journey, before those journeys began, which, by the way, the church at Antioch is the one who started those journeys in Acts 13, so we see the church who's going to start sending Paul, Barnabas, and then just Paul out on evangelistic journeys to Gentiles was the first place, or at least one of the early places, the first one recorded in Scripture to systematically begin to approach Greek people, even if they were Jews, I mean, even if they were god fears. So it says this in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So the Lord was with them. They became believers. Those who believed is a common way for Luke and the early church to describe Christians. They were called followers of the way. Believers, the ones who believed. Though that was pretty common terminology. 
to talk about Christians. So we're actually going to see in just a minute that it was the first time the word Christian is used. Uh, today, a lot of times when, when I talk about our faith, I talk about people who follow Jesus or believers. I don't use the term Christian a lot because Christian and Christianity has become a catch-all term that is so broad that it includes people who are fundamentally not Christians and who are not followers of Jesus. We have churches that are called Christian churches that are not, by definition, Christian. Oh, they worship God. They, wor they say they worship Jesus. They have the Bible. They have all of that. But they are not worshipers in the truest sense because they deny the resur bodily resurrection of Jesus or they deny the authority of Scripture or they deny the exclusivity of coming to God through faith in Jesus. When you do that, you cease to become Christian in the New Testament sense of the word. In the American cultural sense of the word, anybody can be a Christian. You got a group called Christian scientists. They're not Christian. They're not scientists. They're wrong on every count. <laughs> Many people will call Mormons Christian. They're not Christian. Some people think Jehovah's Witnesses are Christian. They're not Christian. In other words, there are things fundamental to their core beliefs that are in conflict with the truth of the New Testament. So having said that, we see that these are people that were believers. The news about this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. This is a pivotal thing. Notice, occasionally we see already a couple times when they would hear something and they would send Peter to investigate in Samaria. Or they would ask Peter to come. Peter is now removed from that process. Not probably because of anything wrong, but the church sends Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. For whatever reason, that was the decision that was made. And so Barnabas is going to go to investigate. And there's nothing wrong with this. We can understand, hey, you know, there's this new church starting up there. We need to know some things about what's going on. We, we, that's common today. Our church is involved with a lot of church plants across North America. In this area, southern New Mexico, El Paso, four of them in um, Arizona. We were with one in, in Denver. Uh, we were with one in Atlanta. They became very strong. We got one in Indianapolis, and we were starting to work with Montana inevitably, Joe and I, or I, or sometimes just Joe, are going to meet with somebody connected to that church plant, or if it's a church planter who hasn't yet started, we're going to meet with them. We're going to investigate. We want to know what's going on. Joe and I, in November, we went to Montana. And uh, I wanted to go in October. Joe thought it was a good idea to go in November when it was cold. So... Next week, Joe's going to Montana by himself. I'm going to teach him a lesson the next time he schedules. But we went and we met with several people. And we wanted to know something about them, their heart, what kind of church they were planting. Was this something we could connect with? And, you know, there are some things we said, yeah, this is a really good fit for us. It's not that the others wouldn't be good situations per se, but they don't always fit us. And so we go through that process. Over time, Cho and I have gone, or especially I have gone, and I remember, you know, I just said, that ain't going to work. We started in, when we started in Phoenix back in 20, I mean, Arizona was in Phoenix back in 20, 
18 or 19, whenever it was, staff went up there. We met with a couple of guys, and I just said, not doing it. In my mind, I knew they were not what we would want to connect with. They weren't going to work. Not that they were bad guys or they weren't followers of Jesus, but there were just things that didn't add up to us, or at least to me at that time. And so I'm saying this. This is common. This is something we do. And there's in and of itself nothing wrong. Whenever I hear about a new church in the area, uh, you know, I'm always a little curious to see what's going to happen, and we, we'll talk about it. Verse 23 says this, When he arrived and he witnessed, get this, the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. He saw them. He rejoiced. He saw God's grace. He praised God, which is a natural response. And then he began to understand something that he knew. They needed to stand firm in their faith. Now think about it. You're in Antioch. You come from a Greek background. You're Gentile in background. Even if you've been worshiping God with the Jews, and you're about to go against everything you were taught as you were raised, everything against your culture, there's temptation everywhere. And so Barnabas says, man, they need to be resolute. They need to be firm in the Lord. We need to grow them. We need to disciple them. We need to get them some some learning. You know, I, sometimes, you know, I realize when, I, and I'm aware of this, and I, that, like Sunday I talked about, while doctrine is important, it's not the most important thing. Coming to Jesus is the most important thing, and that's true. But once you come to Jesus, we, we want you to learn truth. The primary ways we teach truth is on Sunday morning, but that's a lot of evangelism. You come here, I, I approach Wednesday nights different than Sunday mornings. I deal a lot more in doctrine. On connect groups, we have different connect groups of different things. The connect groups that I deal with, we are very much learning truth, and scriptural truth. You know, I, I, I have one I'm a part of. I work with another. We'll have questions and answers. Sometimes they'll ask questions, and, and there I'm going to be a lot firmer and how I respond to things. I'm going to say, yeah, that's not, that's not right. Not, I'm not going to be hard on that. I'm just going to say, yeah, I don't heard that. That's not true. Why, why would you think that? I'm going to dissect beliefs and problems much more detailed. I'm going to disciple you. I'm, I'm going to give detail. When we do the deep fry, we do every year, most every year, in, in, the, you know, in February. And we're going to be in, um, like it's the last Friday of February. I mean, uh, did I say February? July. I hope we're not doing February because I'm not going to be here to do it. Um, that is a detailed, detailed, detailed teaching. So there's always that sense of teaching and discipling, getting you grounded. It says this, he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's what Luke said about the seven that were picked. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. In other words, his involvement, the church began to grow. And here's just those casual little throwaway line in verse 25. And he left for Tarsus to go find Saul. Simple little line. Saul had been saved. Quite a few years had passed. And Barnabas remembers this guy Saul. Saul early on had done some things, you know, in Damascus, and then he'd been to Jerusalem, and then he's just been quiet for a while. He'd been learning. He'd been figuring out how the Old Testament connected to Jesus and all that stuff. He'd been preaching and teaching. His home was in 
Tarsus. And Barnabas said, Saul would be the right guy. He understood something about Saul. This is such an important little sentence. We don't know. We, we don't, I, I, I was reading this oh, a few, I don't know when I was reading this, but I was reading something. Can you imagine? He's, he's going to Tarsus, and he's probably just, I got to go find, he doesn't know where Saul is. Probably he's got to go find, he got to go, a manhunt for Saul. Have you seen Saul? Man, hadn't seen Saul. Have you seen him? Yeah, I saw him. Where is he? I don't know. He's up here. He went over there. I mean, it's just, it, he's just going to look for him. And then he finds him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The first time believers are called Christians is in Antioch. Now, by the way, there was not a term, a complementary term. It was a term of derision by, by people who were, who were making fun of them, probably the other Greeks and all that. But the word Baptist, I think the word Baptist is a phenomenal term. It's the greatest single term you could ever use to describe someone outside follower of Jesus. What are you? I'm Baptist. I'm not just Baptist. I'm Southern Baptist. I'm not a Northern Baptist. I'm not a regular Baptist. I'm not an irregular Baptist. Those people are hard to understand. I'm not an independent Baptist, though I'm very independent. I'm not any of the 130-something different types of Baptists that exist in America. I'm Southern Baptist. So he went, and he got Saul, and they became Christians. But the, oh, I want to say this. The word Baptist was the term of people. The original term it was used was to make fun of them. They are the baptizers. They're dunkers. They're the people that don't sprinkle the kids. They got to baptize them all the way. And yeah, because we follow what the New Testament says, that's why. And now I make fun of all the people who don't seem to follow that. Oh, and I do. Well, the groups, when people sit there and try to explain to me why we don't have to immerse, why we can just sprinkle, my thought is you simply, never mind. Verse 27 says, this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem. I came over. One of them was Agabus, and he stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be certainly be a great famine over the whole world. This took place in the reign of Claudius. Claudius reigned from 41 to 54 B.C. He's mentioned a couple of places um, in the book of Acts. Later on in chapter 18, on his second journey, Paul is in Corinth, and he meets Priscilla and Aquila, who left Rome because Claudius drove the Jews out of Rome, and that would be any Christians that would be connected. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brothers living in Judea. And they did, sending in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So here's what, what Luke's just kind of summarizing. He's throwing this thing for historical context. There was a famine, and the church in Jerusalem, the church around Judea began to struggle. And so the church in Antioch, took up an offering to take to the church of Jerusalem. You get the picture. Church of Jerusalem was the main church for all this time. They sent people to investigate Antioch to determine whether Antioch was viable. And now Antioch has kind of switched places a little bit. And they're sending money to Jerusalem to help them out. Now probably this is because in part the church, you remember early in Acts, you know, they would sell everything they have in, in church, early churches in Jerusalem and give to help everybody, and probably they were all tapped out. There were a lot of people that were left there, um, you know, so you, you have, a, and the people who were followers of Jesus in that Jewish city would be disowned by their families. 
If you were a Christian in Jerusalem, you almost assuredly came from a Jewish background and your family disowned you. So it could be easy. When a famine would come, it could be really hard on them. Throughout the rest of the, well, not the rest of Acts, but in Acts and in a lot of Paul's letters, he is taking up this offering, ongoing offering to help the church at Jerusalem. At the end of Acts, when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, he's taking an offering back to help them and they arrest him, which sets in motion the things that gets him to Rome. So there is this, this sense of helping you know, and ministering to other churches. Now, we have to be careful because we live in a, not just a different era. That's not the era. We live in a different culture. We live in 21st century America. Wealth and poverty are relative terms. There are a lot of churches that struggle, in, and we help some of them. We'll give money to some, and we help, and we help, try to help these church plants. But the reality is very few churches close their doors and, and cease to exist because they don't have any money. They close their doors to how many people. I mean, that's just a reality. I mean, I know that because I've done this for so long. I just understand that's kind of how it is. They didn't send them money for the purpose of ministry. because They could do programs and have Bible studies and kids. They sent them money so the members could eat. They were starving. The money was for relief help widows, children, others. That's a fundamentally different thing than what we normally put in our mind. And so ministry is important. Helping other, other churches is important. I'm always cautious about helping churches that have been around a while that are struggling because I want to know why are you struggling? Let's look at the decisions you made to get there. Are you going to change your decision-making process? No. I'm not going to help you. It's not talking about feeding them. They all eat. Some of these churches that are small have some of the wealthiest people in their area. Their church just struggles. So it's not about people being fed or clothed. It's not what it's about. So we need to make those distinctions when we do these things. And unfortunately, you know, I, I have to make those distinctions. Not everybody always understands when I do that. But unless people are starving and there are ways to help them, usually I'm not going to help a church. Because they got where they got because of really bad decisions. And when I do the New Testament thing and investigate, I find out what those decisions were. And when we talk about them, they don't want to change the way they do things. I'd be a horrible steward of God's money, the money you give to our church. If I sent the money you give to our church to a church, he's going to waste it on the same bad things they've always done. I'm going to do that. I want to send it to a church that's never done bad things yet with their money and give them the chance to mess that up before I send somebody else. What I'm saying to you is understand the, the offering was to help feed the people in the church. That is important. We do that. And when you look like when uh, like Joe, we used Joe's example, he was in Argentina, he dealt with that poverty a lot. We worked with some, you know, projects in Mexico. That's a real issue. When I pastored in Laredo, that was a huge issue. Uh, people in some churches being destitute on the other side of the border, and so we would help them. So making those distinctions, what you see then here is the shift moving away from Jerusalem to Antioch, and in that shift, their roles reverse. Antioch becomes the church of strength, not Jerusalem. And when you get to chapter 13, you're going to see Antioch moving forward 
with evangelistic efforts, not the church at Jerusalem. Things have changed. All right, we'll see you Sunday.